Well, good morning, brothers and sisters in the Lord, fellow believers. It's a joy to gather with you and to sing God's praises, to pray, to hear testimonies of his grace, to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, to be under his word together. Uh, if you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 20. We are today in verses 18 to 26. Exodus 20, 18 to 26. We are continuing to work our way through Exodus. So we have been in Exodus for a little over a year, or maybe a little more than a little over a year, uh, as we've been going through this book. And I'll just tell you personally what a joy it has been to go through Exodus. My, I always tell people when they ask me about preaching and about books that we've gone through, I would say my, my favorite time has been through Genesis and uh, I think that's been equally matched here through Exodus, just to see the way that God has revealed himself throughout history and the way that he builds his plan. Uh, when you look at Genesis and Exodus, you're seeing the, the first building blocks of God's great plan of redemption uh, that we find through Jesus Christ. So what a joy it is to go back to the beginning of the Bible and to see what God has been doing, what God did in the past and how it all points to Christ, how it prefigures Christ, and how we even see Christ present uh, in these narratives of Genesis and Exodus. And today, we come to the passage in our journey through Exodus. We come to the passage immediately following the Ten Commandments, so right after verse 17. And it has been a great privilege over the last few months to preach through the Ten Commandments, to be able to take them uh, and do, as we've said, a, a little mini-series on the Ten Commandments as we've been going through this larger series of Exodus. And I pray that the Lord has used this time in the Ten Commandments to grow your trust in Him and your love for Him. And I pray that your desire to serve Him, your motivation uh, to seek His face and to get to know Him better in His Word, I pray that the Lord has used this mountain peak passage in the Bible of the Ten Commandments to spur all of us on in trusting, loving, and serving our great God. And if you're in a small group, if you're in one of our gospel community groups, you would have noticed that on our deep sheet this past week, and uh, that, that word deep sheet, that idea deep sheet, just refers to the, the study sheet. Basically, in our, in our small groups, uh, we talk about the sermon text, and and we talk about the sermon, and so those questions are written by whoever preaches. They're written afterwards just to kind of get everyone into the text and begin to think about applying that text, discussing it uh, as a group. And on our deep sheet for this past week, the first set of questions was this. How has our time in the Ten Commandments most impacted you? And how has it grown your appreciation for Christ? And so I pray that you will spend some time thinking about those questions. I, I pray that you will uh, ask the Lord to reveal to you again ways that he has most impacted your heart as we've been going through uh, the Ten Commandments. Asking the Holy Spirit to apply his word to your life and to continue to massage it into your heart. So seek the Lord's face. And, and remember as you go back over the last uh, ten weeks plus that we've been going through the Ten Commandments... Now, to, to think about the ways in which God convicted you specifically. 
and the ways in which God showed you your own heart. You know, one of the gracious things that the Lord does is he shines on the places in our hearts that we can't see. Uh, Satan is a liar, he's a murderer, and he's a deceiver. He blinds us from the things in our hearts. And what the Lord does in his grace, by his word, is he shines into those places in our hearts hearts where we are not submitted to the lordship of Christ or where we are straying away from the truth or where we're seeking self or failing to love our neighbor or not honoring the Lord's holy name or whatever it is. And so I pray that you'll take some time to take seriously those moments where God shined the spotlight on your heart. You know, we are accountable for every moment the Lord gives us. And I really do believe every minute that we sit under the teaching of his word, we're accountable to the Lord for what we do with that time. We can check out. We can think about something else. We can stare at the wall drooling. We can just mentally shut down. And we cannot be a good steward of those moments, minute by minute, where God is giving us our spiritual food. I pray that will not be the case with us, that we will, with all of our resolve and commitment before the Lord, ask him to steady our minds, to steady our ears, to steady our bodies, and help us to focus as good stewards on his word. The title for the sermon today is The Response to Revelation. The Lord has just revealed himself to his people. He has come to them, he has spoken to them, and he has given them his holy law. This amazing scene there in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. The Ten Commandments function as the overarching principles of God's law. So we're going to go on to look at the book of the covenant. We're going to look at uh, the different ways that the, the Ten Commandments apply to daily life, specific Areas where it will be applied in in Exodus. But what we're meant to understand is that the Ten Commandments are like big umbrellas over these various categories of God's law. And all of God's law really fits under the Ten Commandments. I mean, even as we think about the ceremonial and judicial aspects of the law, if, if a person wants to define the law in those terms, the ceremonial, the judicial, and the moral, I think at some level those categories break down. But even the ceremonial law, all the sacrificial system, would be encapsulated really under the first two commandments rightly understood. So all that we find there headed by the Ten Commandments, everything else coming underneath them. God has just revealed his will to his people, and in doing so, he has revealed his character. God has made known who he is, who he is and what he requires, uh, who he is, his, his nature, but also his will. So how do the people respond? God has come, he's manifested his presence and he has given his word. He has laid out the, the, the major aspects of his will. And how do the people respond? Or the better question, the question that, that goes a little deeper that we're going to look at this morning is, how should the people respond? What is the response to 
Revelation? And I think we get the answer to that question in verses 18 to 26, these portions of text that come after the Ten Commandments. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's Word together. So we've read the Ten Commandments many times. We're going to go now to the next verse, Exodus 20, verse 18. We're going to read verses 18 to 26. This is the Word of God. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and could translate there for saw, perceived, when they saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, And the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, That you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Verse 22 And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's grace as we're gathered here this morning to meet with us, to speak with us. You know, we know He is present. Uh, we know He's present here with us by His Spirit, and we know that He blesses time in His Word. And so uh, we're just going, we're praying into what we already know to be true of the Lord. So let's ask for His blessing and His penetrating grace. Father, we're thankful for this time together as your people. We're thankful for your church that you have established through your son, the head of the church. We're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life as a ransom for his church, for his bride, for the sheep of his flock. Father, we're thankful that you have been gracious to us through Christ and you've called us to belong to your church. Lord, we're thankful for this local church. As we heard Josh's testimony earlier, we just think about the ways that uh, you've worked in this church from its inception, the ways that you've been gracious to it and and you've grown the people within it. And uh, Lord, you've worked in our lives and you've used one another to sharpen us and strengthen us, uh, make us strong in the faith. God, we're thankful for your word and and how you have established and nourished this church with your word. And Lord, we pray that once again this morning you would speak to us all, that we would have ears to hear 
And that we would not just be those who take it in into the mind and absorb truth, but Lord, we would be those who live it faithfully, that we would apply your truth to our lives. Lord, would we be ready just as Abraham was when you called him, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Father, would we be like that before your face? Would we respond to you? Would we be ready and prompt in responding to the movings of your spirit? God, would you work on our hearts? Would you hover over our hearts by your spirit, just as you did over the face of the deep at creation? Would you bring new life to unsaved hearts? Lord, would you build up those of us who are in Christ? We thank you for your reassuring graces. We thank you that you establish us in your love and you remind us that, that nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we're thankful that we are secure in his hand, that no one can pluck us from his hand and no one is able to pluck us from your hand. Father, we're grateful for your grace and we pray now that you would speak to us and help us by your word, feed us, from it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we find in this passage are two fundamental and interconnected responses that are called for when God reveals himself. So God has revealed himself in the greatest way in the Old Testament there, the theophany, the, the appearance of God there, the, the coming down of God there, the descending, as it is said there, onto the mountain. And God speaks, his people hear, and God gives his law. He gives the Ten Commandments. And as we see this, what we find are two fundamental and interconnected responses that God calls us to. These are the effects of God's revelation on his people. And let me say this to us as well. This is what happens to us. This is what naturally happens to us. This is what should happen to us when we immerse ourselves in God's word. What we're going to see here. So, Look at these on the screen. Reverent fear and right worship. When we come to God's word, when God reveals himself to us, as he does every time we open up the pages of the Bible, these are the two things that ought to happen. And so let me just challenge you with this. Of course, uh, this applies to those who are neglecting Bible reading. Those among us this morning who maybe you haven't picked up your Bible in a while and you think you're fine, that's a deception of Satan to think that if you haven't picked up the Bible in a while, you're okay, you're fine, everything is well with your soul, not so. But it's not just for those who've neglected God's Word and aren't reading God's Word, in God's Word. It's also for those who would come to the Bible repeatedly and casually or maybe mechanically or academically and just sort of take it in, right? You come to the Bible, you read your verses, you check your box, and you move on to the rest of your day and the next day you get up. Maybe you're a really disciplined person. Maybe you're very routine-oriented. And so you're you're, you're kind of tempted to look at those to your left and your right who don't read their Bibles, maybe neglected their Bibles and haven't read it in a while. But here's the penetrating question for your heart. Are you really taking in God's word unto these effects? Are you really taking in God's word and, and monitoring and assessing how much that word is really going down into the heart by these two things? 
Because by rightly reading God's word regularly, this is what ought to happen. Reverent fear and right worship. And so if you're reading the Bible a lot, but you're not seeing these two things increase, that's a sign that you're not reading the Bible rightly. Not reading the Bible before the face of God. With your heart open before God's all-seeing eyes. With humility and piety, readiness to respond and to obey. That is the way we read God's word. And when we do, we encounter his glory. We encounter his will. And these are the natural responses. Reverent fear, which we'll look at verses 18 to 21. And right worship, verses 22 to 26. So let's look first at reverent fear, verses 18 to 21. Look again with me at those verses. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you. That the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. In order to understand what is going on here, we have to go back. We have to go back to chapter 19 before the Ten Commandments were given. And this is one of the things that I've tried to to put before us Uh, quite a bit, is just to remind us that the Ten Commandments are not just this dangling thing in the middle of the sky, right? You just go and pull down the Ten Commandments and just sort of begin appropriating them. They, They come out of a context, right? So we're going through Exodus and we move into the Ten Commandments. They're they're a situated thing. And they're situated here right after chapter 19. Between what we read in chapter 19 and the passage that we're looking at today. The Lord speaks with Moses on the mountain and gives an invitation for the people to enter into covenant with him. So God extends an invitation to his people to unite themselves with him. The people agree all that the Lord has said we will do. We will be in covenant with the Lord. And Moses then takes that message, so he brings God's message to the people, and then he turns around and he takes the people's message, we will do it, thumbs up, and he takes that message back to Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Then God tells Moses in verse 9, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you Forever. So God tells Moses that he's going to come, he's going to appear, he's going to be present with the people. And he instructs Moses to tell the people to consecrate themselves and to warn them not to come up to touch the mountain where he will come down to speak with his people. And so we read this in verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. 
And so what we read in chapter 19 as the Lord is entering into covenant with his people is this emphasis on God's holiness and this emphasis on the need for the people to consecrate themselves. So they're going, they're washing their garments and that we, we recognize that's a picture of their hearts. They're washing their, their hands as it were. They're, they're washing their hearts. They're preparing themselves and they're doing this visual thing to denote that. They're doing this visual thing you know, to demonstrate what's going on on the inside as they're preparing to come before the living God. And they receive this warning. There are certain things they are not to do. There are certain things they are to do and certain things they are not to do. They are to consecrate themselves. They are not to transgress. They are not to go across the boundary that God has placed for them. Then we get this scene in verses 16 to 20. So I'll read it to you. On the morning... Of the third day. So they've been consecrating themselves, preparing for the third day. On the morning of the third day, there were thunderings, multiple thunderings, and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Sure, they were kind of a little reluctant to go out, but they went towards all of this, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. This is thick smoke. And listen to this, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Not just part of the mountain trembling. The whole mountain trembling greatly. Everything trembling. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The people discerned in the midst of all of this commotion, in the midst of all of this intensity and power, they, they witnessed Moses speak up towards the fire, and God respond in thunder. They heard the Lord respond. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So that's the scene. That's what's going on as the Ten Commandments are delivered. And maybe you forgot that. And Mark was gracious to, uh, to, to remind us of that a, a few weeks ago when he did the prayer. Uh, to remind us of the scene. This is what is happening. This is what the Israelites are taking in. This scene is then followed by more warnings to Moses not to let the people break through. So even after all of this, Moses goes up. God reiterates the warnings. Make sure... You tell the people not to break through to the mountain to try to look upon me, to try to see. When Moses returns to the people at the foot of the mountain, God then delivers the Ten Commandments, or as they are here, the Ten Words. He delivers these to all the people gathered together, the people themselves. Not just Moses hear God speak. 
And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we see this. We find this elsewhere too. Uh, Some have debated whether God speaks the Ten Commandments to Moses or to the people. But we find in multiple places a reference to God speaking to all the people. Two plus million people gathered around this mountain. Absolutely incredible scene. Uh, Just boggles the mind. Two plus million people gathered around the mountain with all of this happening on top of the mountain and in and through the mountain. And then God speaks. Deuteronomy 4 verse 10, Moses says to the people, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire on the top of the mountain. So that's the scene. We've got to get that back in view. That's where we were before we started the Ten Commandments. And we've got to go back there to understand what's going on here. So what's going on in our passage? Well, simply put, we are seeing the effect of this scene on the hearts and minds of the people. It's the scene that they encountered prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments. As if that weren't enough, now God has spoken the Ten Commandments to them out of this scene. The people are terrified. They are absolutely terrified. This is a description of terror. Intense thundering and flashes of lightning, a loud trumpet, a smoking mountain, God speaking from the fire. This has brought the people to a state of fear and trembling and to drawing back. They are, they are standing back. And as I thought about this, I thought about uh, sometimes our family will go to uh, a Japanese hibachi restaurant. I don't know if you have been there before, but with, without fail, all of our kids, particularly our, our last two, uh, when they're little and, you know, the, the guy comes out and he's doing all of his stuff with, the, uh, with, the, with, with the, what he's cooking and he starts to do the fire, you know, and he makes the little volcano. But at the very beginning, he just sort of sprays his oil and you are watching him, you know, making sure he doesn't spray it on you. He sprays his oil all over the cooking surface and then he, he lights it up. And without fail, all of our kids draw back, and, and, the, and they want to get back behind Daddy. They want to get back behind the seat. This is the image that came into my mind. It's this, this picture of God and all of his glory and all of his power and all of his majesty as he has made himself known in fire there on the mountain. The people jump back. They recede. They make a request of Moses. Verse 19 you speak to us, Moses. I'm not really worried about Moses. He's not very scary. You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. They have already been warned about death. God himself had warned the people that there's a possibility that they might die. If they transgress what God has said, they've already been warned that they will die if they break through to try to see the Lord. Out of curiosity or some form of idolatry or whatever else. But that's not enough for them. They want to back up altogether. Here you see collectively, they're not interested in going forward, trying to see God. They are wanting to run away from God. They want Moses to talk to God for them. Moses can hear God speak. And they will be just fine getting the message through him. Moses can be the filter. And they can get it from 
him. Moses' response is to reassure the people. In this state of terror in which they have found themselves, Moses reassures them, God's desire is not to destroy you, but to test you. He is revealing himself in this way so that you will fear him rightly and stay away from sin. God has designed this moment. God has chosen to reveal himself in this way in order that you would fear him rightly and stay away from sin so that you will realize the gravity of obeying his Ten Commandments and so that you will be afraid to displease him by breaking them. And then Moses does as the people ask. Verse 21, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You see Moses confidently there. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Moses confidently there going before the people as the people's representative to the Lord. And, you know, as we read this, we might be pretty quick to render judgment on the Israelites in this moment. But lest we too quickly judge them for their fear and request, listen to God's assessment of it in Deuteronomy 5, verse 28. Well, what does God think about what's going on on the ground? What does God think about uh, this whole uh, fear-based response or request to Moses that he talked to God and they not? Well, God's response to that is positive. Deuteronomy 5, verse 28. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. This is Moses speaking to the people. The Lord heard your words when you spoke to, to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of the people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. And then we get it reiterated in Deuteronomy 18, verses 16 to 17. The people said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And then Moses says in the next verse, and the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. So God approves of their request. God approves of, of their desire to have Moses go out to the Lord on their behalf. So now what I want to do is I want to make three observations or draw out three implications for us as we sort of take in this scene and take in what's going on here in these verses. So here they are. First, God's holiness plus human sinfulness equals distance and terror. That's an equation, I think, that we can gather from this passage. God's holiness plus human sinfulness equals distance and terror. It's a reminder of the fact that God is set apart from his creatures, but not just in general terms, but God, the holy, perfect one, is set apart from sinful human beings. And one day when Christ returns, the Son of God, the Word of God, God himself, the I am, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the King and Lord, when he returns one day, there will be on this earth sheer terror at Christ's coming. There will be when sinners who have rebelled against God, who have not bowed to Christ, who have not put their trust in God's gospel, there will be absolute terror at Christ's coming. 
distance from God in this life, forever distance in the life to come, in hell, and terror before the face of the conquering Christ. So here we need to feel the weight of human sin. We need to feel the weight of God's holiness and his glory and the way in which, like oil and water, God's holiness and man's sin clash. Second, God's covenant, his gracious covenant, means that terrified fear is replaced with reverent and obedient fear. So we need to notice something very clear in this passage. God calls us to fear. We see that in this passage. There's a a way, it's interesting to me, Moses uh, first says to the people, don't fear. And then he says, God's doing this so you'll fear. Do you see that in the text? Don't be afraid, but God is doing this so that you will be afraid, so that you will fear. So there is a sense in which we ought not to fear. And then there is a sense in which we must fear. We need to get this clearly from the text. Do not fear, but then God does this in order that you might fear. Genesis twenty two twelve. Now I know that you fear God. That's what the angel of the Lord says to Abraham. When he takes Isaac, his son, and is willing to go and sacrifice him, trusting the Lord with the outcome, knowing that God will fulfill his promises, but desiring to obey God no matter what. Now I know that you fear God. Well, Abraham's already in covenant with the Lord. This is not a fear of terror. This is a fear of reverence and obedience to The God who is sovereign over all. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, There's no wisdom without fearing God. Uh, That's why the world is filled with folly. The world is filled with all kinds of stupidity. Because there is only foolishness where there is no fear of the Lord. All wisdom comes out of this fountain. It comes out of this funnel. Pious, humble God-glorifying fear of God. That's the fountain. That's the spring of everything that's worth knowing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Matthew 10, 28. Do not forget the words of Jesus to his disciples. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Well, hold on a second. I thought this was New Testament. I thought this was Jesus coming. I thought this is Jesus speaking. That's what Christ says to his disciples. When you're persecuted, don't fear those who may burn you alive. Fear the one who has the power over you, body and soul, to cast you into hell. Fear God, not man. And then Peter Writing to disciples of Jesus, Christians, those blood-bought, ransomed souls like us this morning. Peter says, and if you call on him as father, which we do, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear 
throughout the time of your exile. This is not something we hear in sort of superficial Christianity out there. Uh, This is what the apostle says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. In other words, that sinful life that you were saved from, all those ungodly practices of the evil one that you were saved from, fear God lest you fall into those practices again. This is the fear of God that keeps us from sin. Uh, You know, we, we take sin so lightly. Oh, God will forgive me. We presume on his grace. We don't treat him as the holy God that he is. We treat him as our pet. We treat him as someone who gives us what we want when we want it. We are to fear the Lord. We are to fear displeasing him. We are to fear not making much of his glory. We are to fear doing anything that would cause reproach to come onto his name. We are to fear anything. We are to to stay away from anything that would mistreat or trample on his blood-bought people. We are to fear the Lord, and this keeps us from evil. It is the fear of the Lord that Jesus has in mind when he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. For it is better for you to enter life without one of your members than for you to enter hell with your whole body. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Same thing. It is better to lose that than to lose your whole self forever in hell. Fear of God keeps us from sin. And it has always been meant to do that. We are to see God for who he is. We are to see him in his holiness. We are to consider his great ransom of us through Christ. And through that we are to fear him and hate the idea, even the idea of displeasing him. Third, The only remedy for this distance and terror and the only means by which God enters into covenant is through a mediator. That's something we're meant to gather from this passage. So as I said before, first, God's holiness and human sinfulness equal distance and terror. Second, God's covenant means that terrified fear is replaced with reverent and obedient fear. But thirdly, here, we are drawn to a mediator. Moses is presented here as a type of the true mediator who will come. Moses is a picture here. Here's a, a sinful mass of people. And there's one man who stands between the people and the living God. And that man is this Moses guy. Well, he's a sinner too. Moses is not the mediator. He's a picture of the one who is to come. He says this to the people in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 16, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among you, a prophecy of Christ's coming. A prophet like me. Not, not me. I'm nothing. Like John the Baptist. I, I'm, I'm nothing. I got to shrink. But this prophet, he will be great. A prophet like me from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. 
Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. In other words, this is interesting. When Moses tells the prophecy of the coming prophet, the coming one who will act as a mediator between the people and God, he refers to this event in Exodus chapter 20. Telling us that this event in Exodus 20 is meant to draw our minds to the need for the true mediator who is the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the mediator we see even in his own being. He he is God become flesh. Uh, He brings together the divine nature and the human nature in his very person. One person, two natures. He reunites God and man in his own person at his incarnation. And in that, out of that, through his work on the cross and his resurrection, he mediates between sinful man and the holy God as he himself is the very Word of God incarnate. We need this mediator. So let me say to you this morning, you are either under the terror or you have gone through the mediator. That's it. There's no in-between. There's no middle road. There's no gray space. Right, Everyone in this room right now fits into one of those two buckets. Either you've gone through the mediator and you're in Christ and you have reverent, obedient fear toward God, standing in awe of him with a desire not to displease him because you call him Father and you know what he gave for your salvation. Either that's the case or it's just distance and terror and eternal hell. It's one of the two buckets. And I would just encourage you this morning, if you're not a believer, trust in this Christ. Call out to him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. Turn to Christ and be saved. Flee the wrath to come. For it will come, just as sure as that fire was on that mountain. So first, we see reverent fear. Secondly, we see right worship. And as I said, these two are closely intertwined. So let's look at verses 22 to 26 as we finish up this morning. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This set of verses can be broken into two parts, idols and altars. Idols and altars. So let's look at each of these. 
as we come to this passage. So first, idols. Yahweh alone. No idols. These are the first two commandments. Those are the sermon titles that were given to those first two commandments. As we walk through the Ten Commandments, the first one, Yahweh alone. The second, no idols. And here, God reiterates these to Moses. He is to tell the people that they are not to fashion idols. So we've just had this scene of God's glory and his holiness and the people drawing back, the people uh, being fearful, Moses reassuring them in covenant with God, but reminding them that God's desire is that they fear him unto holiness and not sinning. And now we see this focus on worship. Moses is to tell the people that they are not to fashion Idols, No idols of silver or gold, using these two most costly and extravagant of metals as examples. And of course, we know that this anticipates the golden calf incident, right? Uh, when Moses wrote all of this, the golden calf had already occurred. And so Moses is leaning into the golden calf incident as the people make for themselves uh, an idol, probably or largely, or at least in part, of Yahweh. Making an idol of God's a golden calf, something they can see, something they can control, something that they uh, can, can cast themselves upon and, and feel more secure in. And God reinforces this command by reminding the people that they only heard a voice. They saw no form. God did not stand on the top of the mountain for all the people in, in some kind of form, like a human form or an animal form or any kind of form. God spoke to the people. They saw no form. They are not to try to capture this invisible and glorious God by some tangible idol. God is to be worshipped for who he is, not fabricated or cheapened by men. Not made into something that we can control and depict according to our own whims. All, every desire to, to, to make a stand-in for God or, or to make some sort of image that encapsulates God, it becomes another God. It becomes something else by nature. It is essentially something other than God. The people are to accept God's revelation as it has come to them. They are to refrain from trying to depict him in any way. They must approach him on his terms. God reveals, God explains how, he's, how he is to be approached, and human beings obey and follow his lead. We don't get out in front of God and, and just come up with our own way of doing it what we think is best in our limited mind and in our sinfulness, we follow God's lead. We get right behind him. Just as the little ducklings get right behind the mama duck. We, we get right behind him and we go where he goes. We do what he says. We follow where he leads us. This reminds us that God is not to be worshipped through images sitting in front of a picture, trying to evoke some sort of emotional response, trying to draw closer to God, staring at a crucifix, 
meditating on a statue. These are the sorts of practices that have made their way into Christianity, both east and west, and are an affront to the living God. God is not to be worshipped through such trifling. God is not to be, he's not to be mediated by statues and, and pictures and all the rest. It's not to be worshipped in this way. We are to know him by his word. And to, we are to worship him and come to him according to his word. Second, we see altars. So really, the idols portion is, is a reiteration of what we found in the first two commandments, particularly the second. But now we come to altars. Moses is to tell the people that they are to be mindful of how they construct altars. Now this is a passage where you might be tempted to kind of fall asleep on, right? This seems so distant, it seems so foreign, it seems so outdated and historical, so historically rooted. Okay, we're talking about the stones and the altars and all that stuff, right? Dirt, you know, just going to kind of get to the next part. But this is important. God is explaining to, pe to the people how they are to construct their altars as they worship him. This goes back to the patriarchs when we read of Abraham constructing altars to burn sacrifices to the Lord. And we find that when, when Abram leaves Ur, uh, when he leaves Haran, and he comes down south from Mesopotamia, and he enters into the promised land, the land of Canaan, uh, he begins to make these altars to the Lord. These altars to the Lord. He calls upon the name of the Lord, and he's worshiping the Lord at these altars. He makes two, and then he goes down into Egypt, and God delivers him from Egypt. And, and Sarah, uh, despite Abram's lie is unscathed, and then God brings him back to Canaan. Once again, we see him making these altars and calling on the name of the Lord. But it goes back even before Abram to Noah in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. And for that matter, back to Cain and Abel. But in Genesis 8, verse 20, we read this about Noah. As soon as he got off the ark, you think, what would you do if you're Noah? And you have your, your wife and your three sons and their wives and all these animals. And finally the door opens that God had shut and sealed. And the door opens and now you're going to walk off the ark. Well, what are you going to do? Well, Noah knows exactly what he needs to do. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. From the very beginning, there was the recognition that sin brings death. And there are sacrifices needed to transfer the sin guilt from the person to the animal anticipating Christ. And that's what all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, not just in the sacrificial system, but even going back to righteous Abel and after Abel, up to Noah, through Abraham and beyond. We see the need for sacrifice. We see the need for the transference of guilt from the guilty sinner who deserves death to the animal who will die in the sinner's place. Pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These places of altar making are places of God's blessing and nearness. Places where he makes his name known. And that reminds us as we read that here that worship is all about God's name. It's all about making much of God. It's not about us being entertained. It's not about us feeling nice. 
You know, I, it's, it's, it's insane to me the way people talk about so much worship music. It has nothing to do with God at all. It has everything to do with what I feel. It has everything to do with how it entertains me or sort of tintillates me, strokes me, and makes me feel good about myself. That's not what worship is about. It is about God's name. It is about exalting him, elevating him, upholding him, making much of him. It's not about comforting self or filling self. It is all about God. And when we get lost in his glory and we see him for who he is, it fills us with joy. It fills us with peace. It fills us with all that we need for our own souls. It's about God's name and remembering his name. But how are these altars to be built? The Lord says here, That Moses is to tell the people that they are to be built with uncut stones and without steps. So why are they to be built with uncut stones? What does that mean? Well, that means you literally would find stones. And you would take the stone as it is, naturally occurring. And you would bring that stone, drag that stone, whatever, over to the site where you're going to build this, this rectangular altar. Where you're going to burn your sacrifices on. And you would stack those stones in such a way in which you can do your sacrifices on top of them. They, they, they are as they are. As nature has broken them, as they have fallen, uncut stones. So why is it that the Lord wants his people to bring uncut stones rather than hewn stones? Stones that are fashioned and cut, squared off, shaped in a certain way. Well, there's a lot of things that you could say here, but I think there are at least two basic reasons. And here they are, sanctity and simplicity. So I'll talk about each of those. First, sanctity. This is one of the ways that God will delineate his people or set his people apart from the other nations. And the other nations with their elaborate altar building and their elaborate forms of worship will be distinct from Israel, who will bring these stones and pile them up, natural as they are, showing themselves to be different from all of these human glorifying religious systems. Also, they are to be holy in that no common tools are to be used on them, a sword that you might use in battle, and that's the Hebrew word here, cut with a sword, or any other kind of kind of chiseling device that you might use for other purposes is not to be used on these stones which have a holy purpose. So there's the sanctity concern which involves being different from the other nations, but also these stones are different. They are holy. They are separate, set apart. Secondly, simplicity. This is not to be about human glory. Everywhere we look, and even in our own hearts, We see desire for human glory. We love our own glory. We love our own name. So much of the world, so much of social media, so much of of, uh, the, the way in which business functions, so much of what we find in our culture is about promotion of self. It is about buttressing and polishing our own names. Doing all that we can. To make self look good, sound good to everyone around us. God has no interest in our glory. None at all. God is interested in his own 
glory. And so these stones are not to be fashioned with beautiful craftsmanship in the very best craftsmanship of the day by the very best craftsmen among the Israelites. These stones are simply to be rugged as they are, piled here for the worship of the Lord. They're also not to be a distraction. The beauty of the stones, the neatness of the stones, the cut of the stones are not to distract from the focus on worshiping the glorious God. Now, of course, we know that God will give commands about the tabernacle. And later, we know Solomon will build an amazing temple and God will give the commands for how to build these places of worship. But at this stage, what we're meant to understand, as far as these altars are concerned, this is how they are to be constructed. The nakedness is also a reminder of the fall and God's subsequent clothing. Remember in the fall, they were naked and unashamed. They walked with God in the garden with no clothes on. And then all of a sudden, after they sin, they hide themselves. And and the Lord asked why. And he says, well, because we were naked. Adam says, because we were naked. And so we hid ourselves from you. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam and Eve were filled with guilt and shame. Human nakedness is a a physical manifestation of that. It's It's a way of showing forth that. Before the fall, there is no shame. There is no guilt. After the fall, there is. And there is the need for covering. So we see here an emphasis on human sinfulness and an emphasis on God's holiness once again. We're also meant to understand by these steps that it protected the people from falling into pagan practices. You know, in pagan religious culture, uh, sexual immorality and worship were intertwined. And this, of course, does not shock us when we consider that they were worshiping demons. Uh, That at these altars or these religious sites in the ancient world, there was cult prostitution and orgies and the like at sacrificial sites. None of that is to happen in the worship of God. The Lord. So later, in the worship of uh, the in the sacrificial system with the priests, they will wear undergarments that protect their private areas from being visible. This is what the Lord is saying to His people. And as we finish up this morning, I want to end on this note: We must worship God on His terms, according to His word. We don't always understand why. You know, there are things in Scripture for each of us that we come to and we trip over. Things that we read and we think, oh, I, I just ha- wasn't how I was raised. That, that just wasn't what I've been taught. That's not what I've been taught. Or, or maybe it's just it's not what you think needs to happen. It, it just clashes with your wisdom or your sentiment or whatever else. Uh, There are those sorts of stones for all of us that we trip over. We don't always understand why God says the things that he says. Why God wants the things, requires the things that he requires. We simply, in humility, obey the Lord's word. And this goes back to our first point. This is what it means to fear the Lord. What it means to fear the Lord is not to usurp him in worship. It's not to go around him. It's not to take over for him what he alone 
can instruct us on how to do. It is to submit to him with humility and reverence, with fear of the Lord, asking for his grace to understand and then to obey and walk in his way. This is what it means to fear the Lord. And this is what it means to worship him rightly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you that you have given it to us and uh, we see your glory in it. We thank you, Father, that through encountering your word, we, we come to a place of reverent fear, not of terror, but of fear nonetheless, a true, deep fear of God, recognizing who you are and who we are. Lord, and that we come to worship you rightly, according to your word, according to your dictates, sometimes not understanding why you tell us to do the things that you tell us to do, or maybe initially saying, I don't know that I agree with that. Lord, would we humble ourselves before your face? Would we do what you call us to do, trusting you, knowing that you are supreme and you are Lord. And we, we don't know everything. We can't see everything. Our wisdom is so limited and our hearts are so impure. Father, we thank you that you guide us with your word. Now would you give us by your spirit the reverence to obey it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.